If you would, turn to John chapter 4, and then we're also going to look at Jeremiah chapter 2 here in a moment. I have been waiting for weeks to begin this looking at the glory um, that, that is revealed of Jesus as he encounters um, this woman. And we will not see this full uh, story in its, all of its scope today. It's going to take us four to five weeks to do so. There's just far too many things in this that need our attention. But I'd like to whet our appetites today for what will unfold in the weeks to come. Um, and uh, one of the greatest things that you and I um, will discover uh, as we continue to walk through the Gospel of John is that John gives us these longer accounts of encounters that Jesus had um, and deep spiritual conversations that he had um, as he shares the Gospel with a variety of different people. Sometimes it's people like Nicodemus, it's going to be the woman at the well. Sometimes it's big crowds. He will later on have a, a unique conversation um, with Pilate. And as I've been reading John chapter 4 over and over in these last several weeks, um, one phrase has kind of risen to the top for, uh, I think, our time as we begin this together. And it, it just has emerged, and I think it's something that's really significant for us. And this is the phrase, Jesus, when he came here, he was God on the ground. And I began to see this reality of what does this mean that God had come, that God was near, he is God on the ground, and just so many amazing thoughts uh, connected with that. And we will see today, this is um, one of the most fascinating stories in the gospel that reveals his nearness and just how close Jesus came to someone when he was here and how close he will come to you and I in our lives. You and I remember in John chapter 3, and even before John chapter 3, the indication there is, is that Jesus would come to the garden. After the fall in John chapter 3, God comes to the garden in man's brokenness with those when, when in the brokenness began to happen and take place as they rebelled against God. And now thousands of years later, as we read John chapter 4, Jesus has entered the world that is broken and he has come to bear our sin and to redeem what has been lost. And so John 4 grants us this beautiful blessing to see Jesus at work in the life of a broken woman. And he draws near to engage her. You know, all through the gospel accounts, all of them, they give us unique perspectives of how Jesus was much different than the men of his culture. And I looked at those over the last several weeks, and there are 12 unique encounters Jesus had um, with women, and I, I won't list them all here. Um, but Mark 5, there's the encounter with Jairus' uh, daughter. Uh, Luke 24, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection uh, were women. Luke 8, we encounter this woman named Mary Magdalene that tells us that she had seven demons in her and she becomes a follower of this group that is going around with Jesus throughout Luke 10, John 11 and 12. He had this unique relationship with the two sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And so Jesus, we will see over the next weeks to come that Jesus was very different than the cultural norm in regard to women. Now, if you would look with me in Jeremiah chapter 2, we're going to talk a lot about thirsting tonight, 
for today. And we're going to um, really look at that and get an idea about that. But the prophet Jeremiah wrote something very unique in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and, and 13. And it speaks of the emptiness of our seeking out our own satisfaction. So this is what the prophet writes. Jeremiah 2, 12. Be appalled. Who should be appalled? He says, O heavens, be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be shocked by it. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And he says this in verse 13. Why is this shocking reality? Why should the heavens be appalled at what has taken place on the earth? For he says this, For my people, those who belong to me, have committed two evils. Notice, not the world out there that doesn't have a clue about who God is. But my people, those who who are my people, who claim my name, they have committed two evils. And this is what they have done. They have forsaken me. And I am, he says here, I am the fountain of living waters. If you want to know life, then you've got to come to God and you've got to know Him. So He is the fountain of living water. And God's people said, we weren't really interested in drinking from that. And so here's what man did, is they forsake God. And this happens all the time in lives. That when we turn away from God, we turn to ourselves and we turn to our own works. And this is what the last part of 13 says. And they have hewed out, or they have dug, they have put together cisterns for themselves, but because man builds them, they are broken cisterns, and they cannot hold water. They just remain ever empty. And so they have forsaken the fountain of living water, and they have created for themselves false wells that can never truly be filled. Now, before you and I can fully understand the grandness of this story of Jesus' encounter with a woman, we need to know the background and why this is such a unique story. But I want to, let's just read the verses we're going to look at tonight. We're going to go from John chapter 4, verse 1 down uh, to verse 9, and then we will get to 10 and following uh, in the days to come. So let's read this, John 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. This is John the Baptist. Verse 2 says, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So he left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And then in parentheses, John, the writer, puts this to our understanding, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so what I would like to do is I would like to set up um, in, so that we can understand the beauty of the story. 
And, and so we're going to look at the background of the Samaritans. But the first thing I want us to see this morning is I want to talk about, just for a few moments, the growing ministry of Jesus and His wisdom connected with His growing wisdom. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. And so it says here, Jesus learned, He found out that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus and His ministry and, and His disciples, they were baptizing more people than John the Baptist had was doing. Now, verse 2 tells us that Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing, but only his disciples. And so when he hears of this, he leaves Judea, which is in the southern part of Palestine, and he departs for the northern part of Palestine to Galilee. So let me just touch on this just for a moment. So Jesus' ministry is incredibly thriving. He is becoming more famous. More people are coming to him now um, and, his, and His disciples are baptizing these people. What this means is, is that there's going to be more tension that Jesus is going to have with the religious leaders. Why? John was a threat to their leadership, and now Jesus was becoming a greater threat to their leadership because His ministry had outgrown the ministry of John the Baptist. And so the, the religious leaders hated this and were growing concerned about this and the reason they were concerned is they were not focused on ministry they were focused on themselves and focused on their place within the community and their focus was on power so there's no doubt they were not happy with the baptist and this unhappiness now has shifted to jesus as he has gained more popularity but the wisdom of jesus is seen um, in a couple of ways one he doesn't baptize himself. Can you just imagine this with me for a moment? Fifteen years down the road and all of this is over. Jesus has ascended and you've got these churches and these believers and they're kind of all over the world or all over Israel. And, and they're, they're, as human beings do, they're talking about their spiritual life and there becomes a tension where someone says, well, I was baptized by Jesus you are baptized by James. My baptism has more value. And so there's this great wisdom to see that Jesus knew the heart of man. And so he had his disciples do this. And if you don't think that this is actually true, you can just go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul is dealing with this thing in the Corinthian church where people were saying, well, I follow Apollos, well, I follow Paul. And they were communicating and having all of these camps. And Paul was saying, don't quarrel about this. And so this is a reality in the church. And so Jesus has this great wisdom to entrust others to do the baptizing. He doesn't baptize himself. And then the next aspect of Jesus' wisdom is this, is he knew when it was right time to step away all through the gospel of john these words are mentioned in john 2 4 it says my hour has not come in john 7 6 my time has not yet come john 7 8 my time has not yet fully come um, you can even there, there's a number of them you can go all the way to john chapter 10 um, they sought to arrest him if you remember and jesus escapes from their hands he just kind of slips through them and he gets away and so jesus knew that his appointed time to have this big confrontation where his life would be taken was coming, but now was not the time. And so he knew that the Pharisees and the tension was there. And so he slips away from Galilee, or excuse me, from Judea, and he begins to head to Galilee. 
So let's look at verses 3 and 4 now, and I want to talk about the lay of the land so that you and I can understand what's significant about um, this encounter. So he's going to go to Galilee, Jewish land. He's been in Judea, Jewish land. And so he's going to make a side trip, and he's going to do something different. It's going to be connected with the leadership of his father. But let me just kind of give you an idea of what Israel looked at this time. From the top of Israel... To the bottom of Israel was 120 miles. The top was called Galilee. In the middle was called Samaria. And down below was called Judea. Uh, Everything we've been seeing in the Gospel of John so far has been taking place in Judea. Now Jesus is going to go to the northern part. And he's going to go to Galilee. And things are going to begin to happen there. So how did the Jews go from Judea up to Galilee? Well, there were two options. One option was this. And most Jews, because they hated Samaritans, they decided down in Judea they would cross the Jordan River from the west side of the Jordan over to the east side of the Jordan, and they would go north walking along the eastern side of the Jordan River. Then when you got to the top and you got to Galilee, you would cross over from the east to over the Jordan to the west side of Israel, and you would be in Galilee. And so that's what most Jews did. Now, this was difficulty. I don't know how often it is that you cross rivers, but depending on the time of the year, sometimes it's very difficult to cross rivers. And so um, you, the Jews, literally could not stand the Samaritans, and so most of them would take that route. The other option that you had, that would take six miles to go that direction. If you went straight through Samaria... Um, excuse me, it would take six days to go that way, not six miles. It would take six days to go that way, crossing the Jordan. But if you went straight through Samaria to get to Galilee, it was three days. And this is exactly what Jesus does. So let me give you an idea so that you and I can understand um, what really was this background and this hostility and this hatred that was connected to the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans were not Jews, But they were a mixture of two things. They were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles that had intermarried together and had begun to have families. So this is the background of them in this region. Where they lived was the original plot of land that was given to the tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. That's where where they lived. Now their capital was called Samaria, and at one point in time it was a very great city, Um, But because of the consistent rebellion of the northern kingdom, God allowed the Assyrians to come in and take the ten tribes away. As they took the ten tribes away, there were a group of Jews that remained in this area, in this region. And over time, what happened was, is that the king of Assyria sent some of his people and sent a group of people and he sent them back to Samaria. They began to live there and the Jews that lived in the land during the um, during this time, began to intermarry with these Gentile group of people, and this is what made up the eth- ethnicity of the Samaritans. And so they were not fully Hebrews, they were also not fully Gentiles. Let me tell you a little bit about their religion. The Samaritans had their own temple, they had their own religious system, and their own version of the Torah. Now, they did affirm the five, first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. But between the Jews and the Samaritans, there was a strong, deep-seated disagreement as where was the right place to worship. 
Samaritans thought it was um, Mount Gerizim. It was in their area, and the Jews said it should be in Jerusalem. Now, while they did not, and while they were not Jews, um, they did not um, abandon everything connected with Yahweh. They did practice elements of Judaism. They worshipped Yahweh, but they also included other false gods um, as well. So in the beginning, they just simply worshipped the idols that had been brought to them from the Assyrians. But something traumatic began to happen in Samaria when all this began to take place. Not long after that, lions, animals, lions, began to invade the land and began to do a lot of damage with them. And they thought this was their fault because they had turned away from Yahweh. And so the Assyrian king sent um, some Jewish priests that had been captured back to teach um, this group of people the ways of Yahweh and to get things back in, uh, in the right order. And so he came back and he taught them the first five books as well. And though he taught them this, they continued to maintain um, their idols. And so in the 6th century B.C., as the Jewish exiles that had been sent away from Judah, they'd been sent away to Babylon, and then as Persia came to power, as they began to come back, to Israel and they began to rebuild the temple and to re, um, settle things. The Samaritans came, and particularly during the time when Nehemiah was wanting to set up and, and build the walls, and the Jews would not allow the Samaritans to participate in the rebuilding of what was taking place because while they were gone in exile, they had continued to intermarry with these other people. And so this caused great tension. So during that time, the Samaritans built their own temple as the temple in Jerusalem was being rebuilt. So let me just close this point with the lay of the land so we can kind of understand this background here, um, what, was, what was taking place with the Jewish and the Samaritans' relationship. So the Jews spitefully regarded the Samaritans as hated half-breeds. They were not authentic people. They were, they were this way ethnically, and they were, they were this way in their eyes religiously. As a matter of fact, one of the Jewish leaders, a guy named John Hyrcanus, burned down their temple in 128 B.C., which did not improve the relations between the two people groups. As a matter of fact, later on in Jesus' life, he is going to go back through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem, and he encounters such animosity um, among the Samaritans for him going to Jerusalem that um, they... Uh, just just did not want him to go there. And that was the time when, when uh, James and John said, hey, do you want us to call fire down and just burn up the place? And so this tension was real between all of these people. So this is the lay of the land on which we will come to. So let's talk about this now. Look with me in verse 4. Let's turn overlook this significant little sentence because it has much truth in it. And he, Jesus, had, had to pass through Samaria. So here's a third point I want us to see this morning. Is I want to talk about the invasion of Jesus on foreign soil. I want to talk about his coming and I want to talk about the significance of this. So John 4, 4 tells us, and he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. So on the way through this region, Jesus had an appointment that the Father had been working on and the Father had been setting up. And so when we see these words, had to, when you look at the Greek meaning, the Greek meaning is this, 
He was having to go through Samaria. Why was he having to go through Samaria? He was having to go through Samaria because this was ordained by the Father that he would meet this woman and, and something significant would happen. Now let me remind us why we know he had to go was under the leadership of the Father and this encounter that we're going to see in John chapter 4 is so important. What guided Jesus at every step of the way in his life. It was what his father wanted him to do. So let me just give a few of these. There are a number of them. This is John five nineteen. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. John five thirty. I can do nothing on my own. John six thirty eight. Um, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to the will of him who sent me. You can read John 8.28. You can read John 8.38. And then John 12, verse 49 says this. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what I am to say and what I am to speak. So when the text here says he had to, he was having to go, he was going, why? Because the Father was leading him to go straight through Samaria, to go straight to this well, to go straight to this encounter. So it must be noticed by us of the fuller revelation of John's gospel. This was not some, well, we just don't want to cross the rivers and, you know, no, he had to go. The Father was ordaining this. Now, let me just say this just real briefly. I've gone through all of the Gospel of John. I began to notice that the word sent is all through the Gospel of John. Forty times Jesus says, I have been sent. He is the greatest missionary who's ever been, who left heaven, came to a foreign place that was not his home. He came here to invade this world. It was an invasion of God, the God of heaven, the eternal God of heaven. And he came here to the earth and here he is while he's on the earth and he's going to a place that none of the Jews wanted to go to because the father was leading him and Jesus was one who would embrace that now God in Christ had invaded the hostile darkness of this world and because he did that he would change lives and some people would reject his love some people would embrace his love But the eternal God who had been dwelling in heaven had come now and He drew near and He had become God on the ground. He had become Emmanuel, God with us. And so as Jesus steps into Samaria, heading to Sychar, He is going to encounter this woman and He is going to change her life. And Jesus has this missional life that that He embraced You and I must embrace the missional life as well where it calls you and I to see all of the places that you and I go, wherever it is, as the mission field of souls. People who need to hear about Jesus. And while the Jews and likely the disciples had no desire to go to Samaria, it would become a place that Jesus would embrace as His mission field on this day. And Samaria would become a part of of his mission work. So thirdly, we must see that that he left heaven, he came here. He is Emmanuel with us. He is God on the ground who gets human life. And here he is while he's on the ground, he's invading a place that nobody wanted to go to to these half-breed people who didn't worship right, who didn't follow things right, 
and he's going to change someone's life. Let's talk fourthly this morning about Jesus in the very real moments of our lives and the real places of our lives. So look at verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. It was near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So as they were going through Samaria, as they approached the city, there would be a fork in the road that, that where Jacob's well was, and you would go either to the city of Shechem or you would go to the, the, the old capital city of Samaria called Samaria. And so he gets there, and Sychar, this little village... Um, that we hear about here, is located between two mountains, Abal and Gerizim. In regard to Palestine, uh, Shechem and Sychar were two of the oldest cities um, in the region, dating all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Abraham, uh, this is Genesis 12, 6, and Abraham passed uh, through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And so Shechem was in Sychar, this area here, were very famous all throughout Israel's history. When Joshua gathered the people together right before he died and they renewed the covenant before the Lord, it took place very near um, this well. We also know this. Um, it says it was near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. We see that in Genesis chapter 33. On his deathbed, Jacob gave this ground to Joseph. That's seen in Genesis chapter 48. It's also the place where Joseph, when they came back from Egypt and they finally settled the land, it's the place that they brought Joseph's bones back um, and they put them in Shechem near where Sychar was. They were just a few miles away. And verse 6 tells us that Jacob's well was there. So if you came from the south, um, going to the north, and you approach this area, this fork in the road would be at Jacob's well, as I said earlier, that led to Samaria or led to Shechem or the village of Sychar. Now there's a number of different things that also happened at this well. Let me just briefly mention them. Near this is where Abraham made his one of his, his, actually made his first sacrifice, was not far from this well. Um, Abraham's servants found Isaac's wife, guess where? At this well. Um, Rebecca was found there. Jacob met Rachel, where? At this well. Guess where Moses met his wife, Zipporah? He met her at this well. So this is a very famous well throughout the history. Now watch this, don't miss this. All through John's gospel, here is what John is doing. He is, he is attaching to Jesus all of these famous places, these famous things connected either to the law or, or the ceremonial things. Um, and he's showing that Jesus is greater than all of these things. All the way back to John chapter 2, the, the pots that were there, they were empty. Jesus fills them with water, and he fills them with new wine. And so here John is doing this again. He is saying this. This well has been around for a long time. A lot of significant things happen throughout the nation's uh, family heritage and, and, and the people that are there. But Jesus is going to do something at this well that is far greater because he's the one who is greater than the well. He is the one who satisfies thirst. And so they have been traveling from where they've been baptizing. It's, been, it's about 40 miles by the, by the time they get to um, Sychar. It's probably a day and a half they have been walking, and Jesus is tired, and he sits down by a well, and he sends his disciples into town. Now, hear this today. 
this place, this well, Jacob's well, is a real place with real, real history and God is on the ground and God has sat down and He is sitting there and He steps into the real moments and places of our lives with His powerful presence. And when His presence is there, it changes everything and it will continue to reveal that He is the one who is the greater one. His stopping there was about to bring about one of the greatest seemingly unlikely life transformation encounters in the entire New Testament. And when he steps into her life and does what he does, it's not about some distant, nebulous God who doesn't get life, but he steps into the moments and places of our lives as one who understands the human moments. And so here's Jesus. He's tired. He is tired from a long day-and-a-half journey 40 miles of walking from where they had been baptizing, and he sits down at the well. And then everything changes. Now I want to I I I do something a little different. I want you to go to verse 28 of John chapter 4 and verse 28. So look with me there. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Now, I brought something with me today, and I want to pull it up here. So she has obviously come that day, and she has brought something with her to fill up so that she can take back to her house. Now, please notice this, because this is really incredibly significant. Jesus on this day is not trying to gather a large crowd so He can do some incredibly miraculous things to reveal the glory of who He is. He is not doing that. He's going to encounter one single woman. And so now in verse in, 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 this, in the text we meet this new character. There is a woman who has been around as, as far as the ways of the world are concerned. And this round and round of her life um, has worn her out. And no doubt she is tired, but she has learned just to trudge through life and to try and figure out things and just try to make life work. And as the narrative of our life in this text will unfold in the weeks ahead, she seems to have never stopped taking an examination of her life and asked herself, Should, is this working for me? All of these choices, all of these things that mark my life, is this working for me? And here's what we learn about her. Her past is marked by having five husbands. And this time around, she has decided to not even get married for what is the use to get married after so many failed marriages and now she's living with someone and playing house with a man outside of the covenant of marriage and her past was likely marked by adultery and the destructiveness of broken marriages but this is significant she is going to meet the only person ever who is free from the shackles of sin and will open her eyes to see that there is another another way to live than having a hard heart and stuck in the problems of this life. She could leave brokenness. Now she has come with this. And it's empty. And she wants to fill it. And then she's going to go back to her home. I wonder if there's anybody listening today, watching today, and you are world weary just like this woman. 
you've been doing the things and you've been giving your life to them and you're just stuck on the treadmill of life that leads to nowhere but to more of a life that is self-centered and a life that is full of a lack of satisfaction. She is living a life that is isolated from real love, from community, from worship, and obviously she's living a life that is separate from salvation. Now listen to this. I don't even think on this day she's even looking for any of these things. I don't think any of these things about salvation and forgiveness and hope and and marriage and restoration. I don't think any of these things are at the forefront of her mind. She just needs water and she's trudging through life. She's just getting by. And I believe that she becomes a picture and she is a picture of everyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with with the Lord for they are just trying to get by and move on and and survive. Listen to what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Famous New Testament one, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now she's a little bit religious. We will see that in the weeks to come. But, but we will see this according to verse 28. This empty water jar that she brings to the well that day, it stays empty, but her life does not stay empty. And it becomes a symbol of what happens when we dig our own way and we, we want to fulfill our own way. Our vessels remain empty. And she is carrying something that is definitely a picture of her heart's condition. It is empty. She is parched. She is thirsty. She is a spiritually barren person. But there is so much symbolism in the text here. And let me just give a few of them. The one who created Niagara Falls that just flows and flows and flows. And the Nile River and the Mississippi River and the Rhine River now sits spirit physically thirsty right before her. The one who established the oceans and brings forth rain on the earth is right there in front of her. The one who made water spring from the rock when Moses touched it is weary, tired, and thirsty, and he's about to step into her life, and he's about to fill her life with water that she never dreamed was possible to even taste or to even swallow so let me ask this question this morning how about you are you tired of your life being this are you ready for this to stay as it is and our life to become filled with the presence and the power of jesus and this becomes a symbol of our heart if we don't know him but he can fill our lives with everything that we need. And verse 28 tells us this encounter with Jesus. She leaves it and she goes back into the town. Let's look at the sixth thing this morning. Look at 7 and 8. So a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And I'm going to talk now about the great hope of the world, and it's this that Jesus Christ came. 
And so here she's come to the well that day, and she's come at a very unique setting and a unique time. Now, women back in those days never came at noon. This is noon. As Jesus sits down, he's tired. He sends the disciples either into Shechem or he sends them in to Sychar to get food. He sits down. He's thirsty. He's tired. He knows she's coming. And she comes at a very unique time. It is obvious that she is an outcast in her town because she comes at the very hottest part of the day. Women always came in the morning And they did so for several reasons. One, it was cooler in the morning. They came in the morning at dawn and they came at dusk when when things were cooler. They came in the morning for the water for the day. And then they came at dusk for the water and the needs that you would have at nighttime. And they came also, the women came at both of those times for community. They'd be able to talk about, you know, what happened, what's been going on with their family. And it would build community there. But she comes at noon. And it's obvious why she is. She is an outcast. And we get this idea from 4, 17 and 18 and 28. And so the time of her coming indicates, watch this, that she would rather deal with the sun than the stairs. She would rather deal with that than the gossip and the avoidance of the other women because of her lifestyle and her reputation. It is not unreasonable to imagine that one of the reasons she comes at noon away from the other women is that she could have done damage into some of those marriages of the other women, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with her, and she didn't want to have to deal with it. Now, while on a human level, and I've seen God do this all the time, while on a human level, what was obviously probably very painful to her and destructive to her self-worth, this rejection of her, and even though... Maybe much of it was self-inflicted by the choices that she made. Actually, on this day, it became a God-ordained moment where everything was about to change. And I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that in the mess of our lives that sometimes we make, God uses those as a pathway to transformation and to change things. Now, she has no idea what's about to happen. But God's about to do it. So she comes to the great hope of the world who is sitting at a well because she is an outcast and becomes a pathway for her to encounter Jesus' one-on-one conversation with him. But she's also come at noon because the Father has been drawing her. This is a moment of divine intervention. In shock of shock to her life, Jesus says, speaks, Jewish man says to the Samaritan woman, will you give me a drink? So just seeing a man there at that time of day would have been a shock to her, but then he actually said something to her. And Jesus is going to use something common, water, to make a spiritual point, to cultivate an opportunity to share who he is with her. And for many of us, We are drinking from the wells of this earth, this life here, and it's only going to lead to more thirsting, 
to things that will never satisfy. And everywhere in this world, we are tempted to stoop down and to drink from success, to drink from status, to drink from money and sports and fame. And every time we rise, we rise to the reality is that those things never satisfy our lives. And I want to say this again because I think it's incredibly important. As she brings her jar that day at noon as an outcast, she doesn't know this is a divine intervention. She has no idea what's about to happen and take place. She is, I think, honestly, not looking for, she's not even looking for what's about to happen. This is the furthest thing in her mind that she's actually going to meet the Messiah who is called Christ and everything in her life is going to dramatically change. Change. She is just living in a moment in what is her common daily schedule. And she's just going to mind her own business when she sees Jesus there. And then this stranger asks her for a drink. And he will shift the focus to a spiritual conversation. But isn't that just like Jesus? Isn't that just like him? Interjecting himself into the lives of people who aren't even looking for him. And he brings transformation. So this divinely appointed encounter can only be understood by the fact that Jesus came into the world and he was on a mission to seek and save those who were lost. Now, look at verse 8 just for a moment. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. Now, Jesus is always stretching us. Let me just tell you this. This was a stretch for the disciples. I think the last thing that they could have told, they, they would have said to you probably if, as they were going to follow Jesus, that they were going to have to go to Samaria, they were going to have to go into a Samaritan town and spend their money on the economy of the Samaritans and be among those people to buy things from them, to be near to them. That would not have been on their list. And he will always stretch us, always, in our lives so that we will see that people have value and to stretch us. Seventh thing is verse 9. So the Samaritan woman, so Jesus says, give me a drink. She decides to speak back to him. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And again, I think John the Apostle puts this here. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. For one of the very few times in her life, she is in the presence of one with heaven's kindness in his eyes instead of critical superiority. And you can see in that moment that, watch this, she opens her heart. She begins to open her heart. And she says something back to Jesus. And Jesus is going to offer her another drink that does not just touch time and bring satisfaction in this life, but it's a drink that, yes, brings satisfaction in this life, but it is satisfaction for all of eternity. And so we're going to stop now in the text. I told you I just want to kind of whet your appetite of what's coming. And what I want to do is she begins to open her heart and things are, begin to unfold in a deeper way is I want to just touch on some very significant things that this text already in verses 1 through 9 revealed to us about who Jesus is. And I think these are really, really important And so let me just share these with us as we close today. What we see in the beginning part, and the first one is this, it is really important to see the humanity of Jesus. 
Yes, this is God on the ground in a body, but this is God. We know this from John 1.14. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, God on the ground with us here, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so while Jesus walked on the earth, He was not detached from the realities of this life. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews affirms the humanity of Jesus and the glorious reality of His humanity in these two passages. This is Hebrews 2.18. For because He Himself suffered when He was tempted, He is now able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus gets this life. He gets this woman. Hebrews 4.15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but never went over the line. He was yet without sin. So because of that reality, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace where we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The humanity of Jesus is amazing. He walked everywhere. Listen, folks. He didn't have a horse. He didn't have a donkey. He didn't have chariots. He wasn't carried around in a shaded carriage carriage with people holding poles. He used his feet, and he walked everywhere he went. He went without the comforts of this life. This king of glory did. During his last years on the earth, he didn't have a place to lay his head. We know that from Luke 9. 58. He didn't come to dwell in palaces. He came here to be a person, a real person. He gets the reality of life. He was weary physically. He was not free from some of the things that touch our lives. His feet walked on the ground. He didn't float above it. He was not the hovering man of Israel. He was the man of the ground, God on the ground, walking among people. So he got weary physically. Hebrews 5, 8 tells us he cried out to the one with tears who could save him from death. Jesus gets the dark night of the soul where you're crying and pleading with, with God. He also waited patiently. Here he is sitting down in the heat of the day waiting for someone to come along so he can give her the greatest gift that can ever be given, salvation. And you know, when you and I look back at our lives, at some of the strategic crossroads. Guess who's been waiting there patiently? Jesus. And there's not a dark moment, there's not a moment when, when maybe we're even focused on Him, that He's not there, and He reveals Himself, and they become powerful moments, and His patient presence is incredible. So this text is going to reveal the humanity of Jesus, and it does that he was tired sitting by the well and he was thirsty and he didn't have anything, by the way, to get water out. Could he have performed a miracle and just brought water up out of the well and drank it? Yeah, obviously he can do whatever he wants to do, but that would have been self-serving, so he wouldn't have done that. He was going to ask this woman for a drink and to do something incredibly powerful. The second thing we learn about Jesus in verses 1 through 9 is this, is that God values the broken. He values the broken. And the broken look like 
all kinds of things. In John chapter 3, what did the broken look like? It looked like a religious Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, what does the broken look like? The broken looked like a Samaritan woman who was broken in her sin that had left her empty, and Jesus values her. And this pre-existent holy God is sitting on the ground talking to a woman whose very life has made a mockery of the one who had created her. And he values her enough on that day to give her his undivided attention. It is amazing what we see in verses 1 through 9. All of us are sinners. Everyone needs salvation. And we are commanded to love the broken. And Jesus values this woman who is so broken. And this teaches us that regardless of where we go, we are to minister to those in our path. The third thing verses 1 through 9 tell us is this, is it tells us about the tenderness and approachableness of Jesus. What should have been a moment where she would have hid her face from a Jewish man and she would have never spoken to him blossoms into this God-centered conversation where a whole region at the end of John chapter 4 comes to faith. And by the way, she is the first person whom Jesus says, I am the Christ, I'm the Messiah. Most unlikely candidate for this. And it seems as if the most natural thing for her to do, which should have been very unnatural, becomes natural, and she engages in a conversation with Jesus. See, here's, what hap- here's what's happening in this moment. A broken outcast woman is finding herself comfortable in the presence of the eternal speaker of the universe. And she finds the moment comfortable to talk to him. Do you and I know that reality? Do we feel comfortable in the holy presence of God? She has at last met someone who was not a critic but who would be a friend, one who did not condemn, but one who understood. And one who would not add more chains, chains shackling up her life, but one who would break the chains to free her. Fourthly, do not, this is a big one, let the ancient sins of others connected to their ethnicity, their people group, keep you and I from connecting with them with the gospel. Jesus broke all kinds of protocols, and I'm glad he did that. I'm so thankful he did that. You can trace the issue between the Jews and the Samaritans all the way back, watch this, to 720 B.C. That's when the Syrians came in, captured the ten tribes, because none of them wanted to walk with God. That caused problems for the two tribes to the south. Then they intermarry. The Jews come back. They begin to rebuild everything. And they have a problem with the Samaritans because while they were away in captivity, they didn't intermarry in Babylon or Persia. 
they stay true to the call of God and their ethnicity, and they stay true to their religion, and these people did not. And so this, this trouble for them, here we are, that goes back when they come back about 450 B.C. or 480 B.C., they begin to come back. But then really in 450 B.C., all the way now to about 30 A.D., for 480 years, watch this, the Jews hated the Samaritans didn't want to have anything to do with them and it's time for us and it should have been time for them for somebody to stand up and say grow up and be like God who forgives his enemies and loves his enemies every one of us that's who we were at one particular point in time and one who should have been naturally for the last 480 years or so an enemy Jesus just throws it all aside and he values a Samaritan And he engages her in a conversation. And he just breaks all protocols. So some of us have issues with Muslims. Some of us may have issues of racism in our heart about people. And it needs to stop. It needs to stop. Because Jesus becomes our model for us that you don't hold the history of people to them. You engage them with the gospel. And you call them to a place of faith. And I tell you, Jesus knew this. It's horrible to be an outcast socially. Horrible. But it is far worse to be spiritually separated from God by your sin. And Jesus knew that he had to break all that social faux pas to share with her. Here's the last thing today. And it's the transforming power of the presence of Jesus. So as we finish today, let's just notice how things are. There are no disciples around. None of her five f- former husbands are there. Her, cor- her current live-in man is not there. None of the women who have a negative view of her are there. It's just she and Jesus. And when all is said and done, if you want to get to the real heart of the matter, each of us has to deal with Jesus one-on-one. It's not... Did my parents have faith? Does my spouse have faith? But do we have faith? Who is Jesus to us? Because all that matters in the end, which none of us knows when the end will come for us, is what did we do with Jesus? Did we believe in Jesus? Did we trust in Jesus when we had the opportunity? Did we just keep putting it off? And each of us today, if we were to look back over our lives, I wonder how many moments we have had where the tenderness of God has called us to a place of faith And in that moment, we rejected it, and we did nothing. What if today is your last opportunity for the tenderness of God to call you to faith? It's fascinating to compare John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Nicodemus and this woman had nothing really in common. He knows just what to say um, to a religious man who was a leader in Judaism so Jesus tells him about the new birth with a woman she has been drinking from the well the well of men and sex so Jesus calls her to drink from the living water that only he can give here's what their differences are they are as different as one can imagine in their worldview in their reputation in their understanding of right theology in their education in their race in their influence in their morals in their social class financially and uprightness He sought out Jesus to have a conversation. 
And she was not even looking for Jesus at all. Wasn't even looking for this encounter that she had on this day. When Nicodemus finds Jesus in Jerusalem, he knows Jesus' name. When she encounters Jesus at the well, she has no idea that she's speaking to the one who had created her and that can satisfy her. Nicodemus responds intellectually and a little bit slowly. She responds a little more quicker and it looks like a little bit more emotional. And here's the reality as we close. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that's the call upon our lives. All around us right now is such brokenness, such confusion. And our neighbors, our co-workers. And we should engage them in conversation about the hope of the world who offers living water. Jesus. Let's pray.